1 Corinthians chapter 10 is where our focus will be. Um, We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 33 this morning, 14 through 33 in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 10. So where have we been so far? The last three chapters, we've been talking about this ideal of food being offered to idols and the significance of such an idea for a contemporary church that really doesn't have a whole lot of food being offered to idols, and, and, and what does that mean for us? Well, in the past two and a half chapters, Paul has been fully unpacking the issue of what are we supposed to do when it comes to this issue, when it comes to this matter, food being offered to idols. And the Corinthians have most likely they wrote to him, as, we, as, we, as we've talked about before, but I'm doing a little bit of a recap. More than likely, they have written a previous letter to Paul acknowledging that they have a few members in their church that used to practice the local idolatrous religions in Corinth, but since they found new life in Christ, those folks now have greater joy, greater peace, greater hope. Uh, because it is resting in the one who saved them. However, one thing that is still lingering for these folks is that there is a refusal from them to eat anything that may be connected with sacrifices in that same idol temple that they were delivered out of. And you can can picture this, right? I mean, you've seen this before. You've been a part of this before. There are some things that you, you come from that are just too familiar for you to touch again. Does that, does that make sense? And so, and so everybody else might be fine touching it. You be like, you, you know, and so for them, everybody else might be fine. Everybody's sitting in the room and they're, you know, they're eating their wing stop. And, you, and he's like, no, sir, I'm not eating that devil chicken, man. They, 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 you know, they cut that chicken and they sacrificed it to the God of whoever. So I'm not eating that. And, you, and, and so everybody, everybody's looking around like, what's the big deal? But this has become a reality that is creating potential division in the church. Because see, as a result, these folks have become a drag to socialize with. It's like, man, don't, don't invite that guy. You know, he's going to talk about what we're eating and he's going to be picking it apart. You know, they're making it harder to even buy food at the marketplace because you go and you buy food. They're with you. They're like, well, I mean, yeah, I, I, that might be sacrificed to whatever God, so we don't want to buy that meal. Here's that guy again with this stuff, you know, and so, and so it's creating issues and creating tension, and, and they're also making it impossible to attend some of the temple feasts that some of the Corinthians actually ap- appear to want to attend. They're like, hey, I got friends at the temple feast. There's no, no big deal with this, and so, and so why is it that they're making such a big deal? And despite all the many times that the other Christians have tried to tell them that we now possess freedom in Christ— And all food is clean, and no idol can match our God. No idol can match your God. No idol can hold any power over your God. They are extremely still, still extremely uncomfortable with the idea of anyone eating meat sacrificed to idols. And so, from chapter 8 to now, Paul has been unpacking this issue. He spent some time decluttering the argument to get to the heart of what's driving this argument. And what's, and what's driving this discussion for Paul is many of the other brothers in Christ 
Know and believe that there is only one true God of the universe, and he holds everything together. And they know and believe that all the food he provides is clean and not idolatrous in and of itself. And they don't feel like they should have to tiptoe around the weaker brothers and sisters who don't understand their freedom in Christ. That is ultimately the, 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 the issue, or, or that is ultimately how Paul has distilled this issue and just reduced it to its bare bones. Those are the two things. We know who God is, and we don't feel like, because we know who God is, we know we have freedom, and we shouldn't be tiptoeing around this issue. They need to just, you know, change and get over it. And to that, Paul enters into the conversation in chapter 10, or in chapter 8, and he says that what you guys are experiencing really isn't a food problem. What you're experiencing is a problem of pride. What you're experiencing is a problem with selfishness. What you're experiencing ultimately is a problem with idolatry. And so he gives them the call to lay down their rights for one another. And he shares how he has laid down his own rights in order to see the gospel have a greater impact on those that he is ministering to. And then he shares several examples like we talked about last week from history. He says, your forefathers had some struggles with idolatry. He talks about how things went real bad when Israel refused to learn how not to play around with idols. And so all of that has led to this moment in verses 14 through 33, where Paul reaches a final verdict of sorts on how to handle this issue. And in that final verdict, he is giving us a command, and then he is going to help us understand how to fully live that command out. So we have a command here, and then we have the application and the how to live out that command. Here's the command. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, look there. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. This single command is what Paul has been building up to for the last two and a half chapters. All of the admonishments and instructions concerning food offered to idols has been Paul's way of helping the Corinthians understand the sneaky nature of idolatry. You see, saints, idolatry can oftentimes hide itself in Christian freedom. I have the right to eat. I have the right to eat this food offered to idols. And because I'm free in Christ, all the while the exercise of the freedom is leading me from Christ in the arms of false idols. Does that make sense? Sometimes idolatry uh, idolatry can mask itself in knowledge. In other words, I know that there is only one God who is all-powerful and all-wise, and no idol can harm him nor harm me because he is all-powerful and all-wise. So there is nothing wrong with participating in the idol's temple feast, in the idol's temple sacrifice. Why? Because he's all-powerful, he's all-wise. Nothing can harm him, nothing can harm me. All the while, that participation, though, is leading me away from the table of Christ to the table of demons. Christian freedom and Christian knowledge can be a road to idolatry if we're not careful. See, Paul has been working really hard to make this truth abundantly clear, and that's this. You can allow your freedom in Christ to be used as a stumbling block for other brothers and sisters. 
and you can allow your freedom in Christ to be used as a personal door into deeper issues of idolatry. You see, my freedom and my rights in Christ in my entertainment, for example, can drive me away from Christ and into an idolatry of lust. My freedom and my rights in Christ in career pursuits can drive me away from Christ and into a deeper idolatry of money. My freedom and my rights in Christ and, or in where I go and who I can go with can drive me away from Christ and into a deeper idolatry in my relationships where the gods of those I run with become my gods, oftentimes the biggest god among them being the god of self. And all of this could start with saying, I have freedom in Christ, and because I have freedom in Christ, and because I know that God is, is the God of all and that there is no idol that can touch him, I can dabble, I can dibble in these areas without concern of me being harmed. So to that truth, Paul gives this instruction, flee from idolatry. Now, don't play with it is what Paul is saying. Sure, you have freedom, but don't play with idolatry. Don't use your Christian freedom to dabble in it. Run as far away from it as possible. Run as far away in the opposite direction of it as we possibly can. Now, as always, notice that there is here in this verse a therefore, and that therefore always has meaning. And Paul is saying in light of what we just discussed, in light of what we just discussed, flee from idolatry. So the question is, what did we just discuss? And the most recent thing connected to this subject was what we talked about last week. Israel struggles in history where they are constantly failing through the years and letting idolatry get a foothold in their community. And this was our talk last week, verses 1 through 13 of chapter 10, where we talked about all the ways that Israel let, let idolatry creep in over and over, even though they had this tangible experience with God. And they witnessed firsthand God's provision, God's protection, God's preparing of the way for them. And yet they still constantly fell into idolatry. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with many of them. Chapter 10 says, because despite all that they had been shown by him, they still grumbled, they still complained, they still commanded Aaron to make idol gods in, in, in his place, they still chased other gods by engaging in sexual immorality with pagan women of the land in which they resided. And so Paul's word to the Corinthians here is don't dabble in idolatry because when you dabble in it, you get swallowed by it. There's one more point worth making in the connection between the command in verse 14 and everything that comes before the command in verses 1 through 13. The call to flee sexual, not sexual immorality, that's earlier. The call to flee idolatry is a strong call. Flee is a strong word in this text. It is communicating an immediate impending danger. One that, a danger that must be responded to quickly and diligently in order to be stopped. In other words, Paul is saying, be quick, be decisive, be diligent. Don't dabble in it. Don't dabble with it. Don't toy with it. Run from it. Now, think of that in light of the verse that we just read last week. The very last verse in our, in our text last week, in verse 13, look up from uh, one verse from 14, and it says, no temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. 
God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It's very significant for verse 14 because what Paul is saying is that the Lord always gives a path out of our temptation. And as we said last week, most of the time that path is not simply stop thinking about it or stop doing it, but instead it is start connecting the thinking and start connecting the doing to something different. Replace the evil with something beautiful. Replace the evil with something pure. Replace the evil with something holy and righteous and divine. Replace the evil with something more eternal rather than temporal. But Paul's point in calling us to the urgent command to flee from idolatry is to let us know that escape from idolatry needs to, care, needs to be carried on with urgency. Do you understand that? In other words, God's way of escape is always present and available, but it, is, but it also does not necessarily consist of a lackadaisical effort. There must be urgency in running to the way of escape. And so don't read that verse and say to yourself, well, God has already, always got an, an out for me in my temptation so I can afford to dabble. I can afford to stick my toe uh, in. No, that's not the way this works. You stick your toe too far out there and the gator is coming to bite it. Flee from idolatry. That's the escape that the Lord has given us. Does that make sense? Run as far in the opposite direction as you possibly can. That is the escape that the Lord has given us. Do not allow your knowledge of God or your freedom in Christ to serve as a stumbling block, not just to your neighbors, but to yourself. Don't let freedom lull you to sleep when it comes down to running with urgency away from idolatry. Even if it's something as simple as the meals that we're eating. For the saint who just can't quite seem to get in their head that that's a big deal, or what's the big deal about this food being offered to idols, Paul gives them one final explanation. Verse 15 through 17, he says this, I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. See I'm talking, to, I'm talking to people that can think for themselves. I'm talking to reasonable people here. I want you to think about what I'm saying is what Paul is saying. Verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the, blood, in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. The first way that Paul opens our eyes to the reality that participating in an idolatrous meal can very well be an act of idolatry is by reminding us what is actually happening when we participate in our own meal. He says, what's happening when you participate in the communion, in the Lord's Supper? Paul is going, Paul is going to dive into this, uh, into this sacrament in chapter 11, but, but for now, he wants to make this point. When we come to the table to eat the Lord's Supper, it is more than just a meal. When you come to the table to eat the Lord's Supper, it is participation with the Lord. It is participation with the Lord in the presence of the Lord. And it is proclamation of the Lord's gospel. It is a spiritual act. 
Remember what Jesus said. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He said when he, on that night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In other words, there is something deeper than just eating that's happening. There's participation with the Lord. There is fellowship with the Lord at the table. There is a proclamation of God's good news at the table that his body has been given to us. And in giving his body, we have become, we have joined and become united with him as one body. There's something being said there. And Paul is saying the same can be said when we participate at the table of idols. You see, when we use our freedom to participate in this feast of false gods, we are participating with something. And we'll unpack what that something is in just a moment. But for the person that says, well, these gods are dead. I'm just here to grab a good, you know, good burger, man. I heard, they, I, heard they, I heard after this feast they cook great burgers. I'm just here to eat a burger. Or after the sacrifice they cook great burgers. No, no, no. Paul says you are participating in something with something. You are proclaiming something. When you're at the Lord's table, you're proclaiming the glories of the Lord through the gospel. But when you're at that table, you're pro pro uh, proclaiming the glories of this false idol. Does that make sense? He continues on in verse 18, and he gives us this. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. Second way Paul opens our eyes to the reality that participating in this kind of meal, this, this meal in the temple can be an act of idolatry is by highlighting the significance of the sacrifices in the Jewish sacrificial system. It says, hey, look at Israel. When they took part in those sacrifices and they ate that food in, accord, uh, in accordance to Leviticus 3, Leviticus 3 says, verse 3, and from the sacrifice of the peace offering as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering of the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And then Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And so they have this offering where they are taking fat and taking meat and taking pieces from it. And then they are given instruction to eat it. And all of that is a part of this system, right? And they are participating in something with God when they do that. He says, when you look at Israel, you look at the people of Israel, and you look at their sacrificial system, and you look at the reality that they were participating in something. He says, what do you think that means um, about you when you are eating in the idol's temple? You're participating in worship when you eat in that temple. Paul is implying, this is what one theologian says, he says, Paul implies that to knowingly eat food that has been clearly identified as such, as, as food offered to idols in the temple, makes one a willing participant of the offering from which it was taken. Such is understood to be the case in Christian participation in the Lord's Supper and in the offerings made at the temple in Jerusalem as well. And it would be only reasonable to assume that it applies to food offered to idols also, 
end quote. Paul's point is that when we engage in the feast of the temple, we are engaging with the gods of the temple. Now, after hearing that, the easy thing for the Corinthians to come away with here is, well, Paul is saying that these idols have way more power than he initially shared with us, apparently. And so, okay, Paul, maybe we'll stop. Maybe we need to stop eating from the food in this temple. But I thought you told us that these idols didn't have any power. So what's going on here? What are you, what are you telling us now? Have you changed your mind, Paul? And here, here would be Paul's response, verses 19 through 22. He says this, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be a participant with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Here's what Paul is not saying. He's not saying that these idols are living. He's not saying that these idols pose any threat to God. He's not saying that even the food offered to these idols carries any real power. But this is what Paul is saying. That even though these idols are dead, and even though these idols are, are, are blind, deaf, and dumb, they're inanimate, they have no ability, what you are participating with is not the idol. You, you understand that? What you are participating with is the demon. You see, when we are participating in these sacrifices, even as powerless as the food and the idol is, we are participating in a deliberate effort by Satan and his demons to rob God of glory and to derail the children of God off of their pursuit of God. See, in giving attention and reverence to a dead idol, we are falling, rather, into a trap of Satan and taking attention from the one who is worthy of it and handing it to the devil. Be careful that your freedom in Christ isn't being used to rob glory from Christ. Sure, you can participate in social media. What's the harm? There's no power over me and... That may be true. Sure, you can participate in politics. What's the harm? There's no power over me, and that may be true. Sure, you can participate and enjoy entertainment and enjoy sports, and there's no power over me, and God's sovereign over all of it, and all of that may be true. These things do not have ultimately any power over God, and we are free to enjoy every single one of those things that I've listed, and participate in all of them. But the question we have to constantly ask ourselves as we are engaging freely in those things is how will Christ be glorified and is Christ being glorified? And even, and even sometimes the question we have to ask ourselves is how is the devil attempting to use this freedom to rob God of glory? How is he using this freedom? How is he attempting to use his freedom? Well, Crawford, I'm glad you told me that. I'm going to go home and close all my social media accounts. That's not what I said. That's not what I said. I said, how is God being glorified 
or how is the devil attempting to use it? There's freedom, but you have to realize that demons are behind the scenes trying to use your freedom to rob glory from God. Now, if you were reading this letter again and you heard Paul say this, you would probably say to yourself, okay, Paul, got it. So, so no eating food offered to idols, right? Got it. We don't want to touch any more cheeseburgers that they cook in the temple. Got it. And to that, Paul would say, yeah, it's not, it's not what I'm saying either. Paul, I'm totally confused now. What are you talking about? What, what do you want us to do? Look at verse 25. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are deposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Here's what he's saying. To the question, do I eat anything in the temple and partake in the feast of the idols? Paul says no. Why? Because the feast is attached to the worship of the idol. So you don't eat that. Well, what if they finish up and they take some of that meat and they sell it back to the marketplace and the marketplace has this meat and it's all just kind of in there. You got some meat that was in the temple. You got some meat that wasn't in the temple. Paul says, buy the meat, you know, don't ask any questions. Doesn't have any power over you. Well, what if we buy that meat and or we get invited to a, a dinner, um, Super Bowl, Super Bowl party, and the church buys wings from Wingstop, and then somebody stands up and says, man, those wings from Wingstop, they're offered to Baal. They do it every week. I've seen them. They stand and they, you know, they, they pray to Baal as they, as before they throw them in the grease, and then they, then they package them up and they bring them. You guys want to stop eating at that point. That's Paul's point. Why? Because of the weaker conscience that says, that looks at the Christians and says, y'all are participating in idol worship. He says, it's better that we don't eat than to ever be given the reputation that we're participating in the idol worship. And so he says, for the sake, not of your conscience, but for the sake of the conscience of the one who raised the issue, the unbeliever who said, man, I'm telling you, this, this is food offered to the devil. For the sake of that person's conscience, you don't eat. So, Paul, what do we do then? You got all these crazy rules. You're telling us when we're in the temple, don't eat it. You're telling us if we go to the marketplace, we can see that same meat. But if we go to the marketplace and nobody's complaining about it, go ahead, buy it, eat it, don't ask any questions. You're telling us if we go to an unbeliever's house, and they can literally cook the meat that we brought from the marketplace to their house. 
But if they realize that their food was offered to idols and they say, I got a problem with that, you're telling us not to eat it then. Paul, what do you want us to do? The answer is, I want you to flee from idolatry. The question is, how do you do that then, Paul? And that's what verses 23, 24, 31, 32, and 33 are all about. Look at verse 23. He says this. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Listen to this. This is important. How do you flee from idolatry? Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. You see, all things, food, drink, television shows, political discourse and positions, social media engagement, etc., all things may be lawful, but will they be helpful for everyone? All things are lawful or are, is probably what, what, what was either written in that letter that Paul received from the Corinthians or was possibly being said, you know, kind of coined as a, as a going phrase in the church now that people have freedom in Christ. All things are lawful. All things are lawful. We've been given freedom. We've been given freedom. Paul says, yeah, you've been given freedom, but is it beneficial? Who is it helping? Who is it serving? All things, food, drink, television shows, political discourse and positions and social media engagement, all things may be lawful. Yeah, but Paul would say, will they lead to others being built up? How are they edifying people? Paul says, you want to know, you want to know what's the rule about eating in the temple or eating in the marketplace or eating in the home? What's the rule? The rule is, will it be helpful Will it edify? Will it build up? Or will it tear down? Will it provoke? Will it provoke anger? Will it provoke um, um, a, re- a, a bad reputation of the church? What's happening in terms of the people that you're serving? That has everything to do with what you do. This is about fleeing from idolatry, believe it or not. You say, how is this fleeing from idolatry? Well, what did we talk about the demon's purpose in the food? To rob glory of God. Idolatry ultimately is an attempt to turn the gaze away from God to idols. And so when we pursue Things based on our own desires and our own passions and our own pursuits. What are we doing? We're turning the gaze away from God to the idols. How do you flee from idolatry? Selfless living. That's verses 23 through 24. How do you flee from idolatry? Verse 31. Look with me. So whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, but that of many that they may be saved. How do you flee from idolatry? Whether you eat or whether you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. How do we give 
Glory to God in all things. Well, let me tell you what this does not mean, all right? Because this is what we typically take away from this text. When we hear, whether eating or drinking, do all for the glory of God, what we picture is me, you know, sipping a glass of Chardonnay, and as I'm sipping it, I'm saying, praise to God for this glorious beverage, this tasty fruit of the vine. It could mean that in part. That's not what Paul's talking about right here, though. You understand that? You can be giving glory to God doing that. But what Paul is talking about is when you have the ability to sip a glass of Chardonnay, and you got somebody that's saying, man, that Chardonnay is devil juice. Instead of you saying, well, that's stupid, you actually put the glass down. That's what Paul is getting at. Paul is saying that when we're talking about giving glory to God, whether eating or drinking, his, his point in this text is about laying down rights, not exercising rights. Exercising rights can be about God's glory. Let me be clear. You can enjoy good things and then say, out of the abundance of those good things, man, thank God for this. This is beautiful. This is, I love, I love the fact that God created this beautiful, you know, beautiful drink for me to enjoy or this beautiful, beautiful spread of, of food for me to enjoy. All of that can be good. But Paul is talking about when we're laying down those rights to do it all for the glory of God. It means that the road to glory Glorifying God is to sacrifice for the sake of others. Right after he says that in verse 31, what does he say in verse 32? You can read it. What does he say? Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. The road to glory is to sacrifice for the sake of others. And for the sake of the gospel, we exercise all freedoms that we exercise for the sake of all people. That's why you exercise your freedom. You don't exercise your freedom for you. You exercise your freedom for the sake of others. Culture says, man, you can't live trying to please everybody. Now, come on, I mean, just ain't real. Paul says... Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. Now, that's not intended to take from that. It's not intended for us to take from that that Paul is trying to be a people pleaser. What is meant to take from that is that Paul uses every right, every freedom, every single bit of knowledge that he has. He is disciplining himself to use it to serve other people, not to serve himself. The exercise, in other words, the, 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 the pursuit or the discipline that Paul is subjecting himself to is a discipline that is geared to stop living for me, to stop thinking about me. When my freedom is in, when, when I have an opportunity to exercise a right, who is this helping? It's to rearrange my thought process to start asking those questions of myself. Does that make sense? 
And that's why Paul says, hey, if that freedom gets in the way of serving the Greek, I lay it down. If that freedom gets in the way of serving the Jew, I lay it down. If that freedom gets in the way of serving the church, I lay it down. I'm doing everything that I do to please everyone that I'm serving. I'm living no longer for me, but in doing this for the glory of God, I'm living for others. Saints of God, the road, of, the, the road to idolatry is paved simply by people selfishly pursuing their own way. That's the road to idolatry. No matter what that idolatry looks like. You want to talk about idolatry of social media, idolatry of entertainment, idolatry of money, idolatry of politics, whatever idolatry you want to look at, it is paved by people pursuing their own way, period. But the road to the glory of God, pursuing the glory of God, is paved along the same road that our Savior walked. The road to do what? Lay down his life. We worship him, not just in word, but we worship him indeed by laying down our lives. Why? Because he laid down his life for us. In fact, Paul says in verse 33, the last thing he says, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Paul says what's on the line, what's on the line is the glory of God, me using my life to bring glory to God, but what's also on the line is the salvation of others. A gospel proclamation wrapped in selfish living, is a powerless gospel. Is there any power in preaching about a God who gave his life for the world? And since he has come into my life, having given his life for me, I give no more to this world than I did before he came. Is there any power in that kind of proclamation? Do you understand what I'm saying? Paul is saying that I am giving my life up in order that I might be aligned and connected to the gospel that I proclaim. If I preach a gospel of a God that gave all and I give nothing, then that gospel's inconsistent. Do you understand? And so when we look at the world and we begin to ask ourselves the question, why is the world not, you know, why the world reject that gospel? Well, one reason they may reject that gospel is because they're choosing their own God. But another reason they may be rejecting that gospel is because the gospel that we proclaim isn't consistent with the lives that we live. We're preaching a God that gave all and we give nothing. And if that's the case, then we have to reevaluate that. We have to, we have to, during this season of our lives, as we are praying and confessing, we have to confess that and we have to ask God for the help to, 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 to do what? To live more selfless lives where we aren't clamoring for our freedoms and grabbing for our freedoms, but rather we are willing to lay them down so that God may be glorified and people may be saved. So what does food offered to idols have, have, have to do with us? A lot. A lot. In particular, 
the call to lay down our rights so that God may be glorified and others may be saved. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And we give you all the praise and all the glory and all the